Please join me in prayer. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who keeps Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do. We do. These lyrics come from an episode of The Simpsons, a TV show that just about everyone in my generation knows encyclopedically. We Do, We Do is sung by a secret society called the Stonecutters. Homer Simpson, the beloved and klutzy main character, is desperate to join them because of all the perks the members get from each other in mainstream society. And eventually he gets in. In fact, it turns out that Homer has a special birthmark in the shape of the Stonecutters emblem, uh, which means he's actually the long-awaited chosen one. Initially, he's overjoyed with the privileged position, but soon he feels isolated by the power. And when he suggests that the stonecutters focus on helping the community rather than themselves, they quickly form a new organisation called the Ancient Mystic Society of No Homers. Once again, Homer feels isolated, but his wife Marge points out that he is a member of a very special society, their family, and all is well again. The episode is a good example of what it means to be in a group and what groups are for. The Stonecutters existed to help members get ahead. The ancient mystic society of No Homers existed to keep Homer out. Political philosophers teach and common sense confirms that human beings are social. We naturally form groups and societies like families, schools, businesses, even pigeon fanciers which have existed as a society in New South Wales since 1917. The church is no exception. Um, We're a group of people who form a society. Uh, So the question then arises, who are we and what are we for? Uh, We know we're not an ordinary human society because, as we just heard, we've been called by God. Uh, And this question of who we are isn't academic but significant and practical. A couple of years ago, my brother Philip married an American girl named Lucy and she can trace her family line back to an ancestor who served in the Continental Army as one of Washington's officers. Very impressive, yes, but does this affect how she lives? Not really. As Christians, we've got to be crystal clear about who we are and what we're for. And our passage today from Ephesians provides that clarity. Of course, Paul has already discussed the topic of our identity. In Christ we've been blessed, adopted, freed, forgiven, made alive, raised up, reconciled and unified. God did this for us and that's why we call it grace. But now we're told how to respond to our calling. And while the second half of chapter 4 will get specific about issues and instructions, our passage is about the general principles. Uh, In fact, in the original, there's only one command in the whole passage. There in verse 1, walk worthily of your calling, where walk is an idiom for live your life. So what's the church of Jesus for? How are we to walk worthily of our calling? I've got two points. 
Walking worthily means, first, we have a priority of unity, verses 1 to 6. And secondly, a project of maturity, verses 7 to 16. So let's think first about what it means to prioritise unity. It's important to realise that our unity isn't of our own making. We've been called by God into it. Jesus reconciled us to God by his blood and made two people, Jews and Gentiles, into one new people, Christians, so that there's no longer two but one. Uh, Notice also in verse 3, this unity comes from the Spirit, the author of peace and concord. Our role then is to be passionately supportive of this unity. And Paul says this happens through the exercise of certain virtues. Here they are. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance and love. Let me share a truth universally acknowledged. People can be annoying and difficult. Uh, This includes you and me and every person, Christian or otherwise. But the answer to the difficulty of each other is not complaint or indifference, but virtue. At a previous church, there was a young woman I found very difficult to get on with. Our personalities always seemed to clash, and I think the feeling was mutual. Uh, But in fact, Jesus loved her uh, just as he loved me. And Jesus had dealt with her humbly, gently, patiently, forbearingly, and lovingly. And he dealt with me in the same way. Jesus had graciously included both of us into his church. And that fact had to win out over the fact that we struggled to get along. If we're to show to the world that we're one in Christ, we can't be idle, bitter and or indifferent. Mutual graciousness in the ways listed here is how we maintain our unity. To help us adopt this priority, Paul points to the source of our unity in the triune God. And we're looking now at verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. No prizes for picking the word that's repeated. It's one. Unity is first a fact of our God-given identity before it's a product of our spirit-led action. If it were otherwise, we'd be cactus. Our unity comes through us from God. We are one body. The idea of a body, of a single living organism with many parts, is the major New Testament metaphor for the people of God. There's only one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. And that's because God the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in multiple temples, churches or bodies, but in a single holy temple, church and body. The logic continues. There is only one Lord Jesus, not multiple lords, to each of whom we owe a partial allegiance, but one Lord, the object of our faith. And faith here doesn't mean that we believe, but what we believe. Jesus is the Son of God, the King, the Word become flesh, our only Saviour, crucified, buried, risen, ascended 
and returning to judge and rule. And humans come to this Jesus through one baptism. It's our turning to Jesus through symbolically dying and rising again through him. And so we arrive at the fact that there is one God and Father whom Jesus brings us to. He rules over us all, works through us all, and dwells in us all. This is the basis of our unity and the reason we must prioritise him. Here's a cheeky question. Do you really believe that the body of Christ is one? John Stott, commenting on these verses, wrote, You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It's no more possible to split the church than it's possible to split the Godhead. But wait, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, published in 2001, there were, at that time, 33,830 Christian denominations across the globe. How do we reconcile the teaching of Scripture with this statistical fact? Well, I think by beginning with this verse from the start of 1 Corinthians. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The answer lies in a basic principle. Difference doesn't always equal division. The always is important there. A difference doesn't always equal division, though sometimes, sadly, it does. Wherever Jesus is genuinely confessed as Lord in Trinitarian faith, we should make what Archbishop Cranmer called the generous assumption. Now, this might raise all sorts of questions about the Roman Catholic Church, about liberal Protestant denominations and breakaway independent groups. And those kinds of questions I'm happy to discuss, but they're beyond the scope. Uh, My suggestion is merely that people who sincerely call Jesus Lord and persevere lifelong in his name should be generously taken to be Christians. Uh, Ten years ago, a Christian woman named Asia Bibi was charged with blasphemy in Pakistan. The accusation, it seems, was motivated by religious bigotry. During a dispute with a Muslim from her village, apparently, she had said, Jesus Christ died for my sins. What did Muhammad ever do for you? As a result, she faced the death penalty. For many years, I prayed for her release and her safety. And in October 2018, she was finally acquitted. And last year, she left Pakistan safely. But only recently did I learn that Asia Bibi is in fact a devout Roman Catholic. Do we belong to very different Christian traditions? Yes. Would I be much happier if Roman Catholics like Asia became evangelical Protestants like me? Yes. Should I consider her a non-believer and withhold prayer from her or others like her in a similar position? No. I'm willing to make the generous assumption. Uh, This issue of unity is complex and we need to be careful. All the same, we need to confront the issue. In John 17, we heard that our Lord Jesus prayed to the Father that all who believed in him might be one, 
Jesus' priorities are our priorities. Our unity, however, is not the whole picture. There's also diversity. And the reason for that is because we have a project of maturity. Like the daggy patriotic song, we are one, but we are many. Look at verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given, measured out by Jesus. This isn't the grace that saves, but grace that serves. It's uh, service grace. In this one body of Christ, each of us plays a part. This is God's design. We read in verses 8 to 10 that Jesus descended to earth to go to the cross for our sins and now has risen and descended in triumph to God's right hand, as the scriptures foretold. He was humiliated and then exalted. And now he has given gifts to his church. But the only gifts Paul mentions are people. Verse 11, Jesus gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. We're to see that gospel-focused Bible teaching sets the agenda for the use of all other gifts. The New Testament gives a priority to word ministry. This isn't to say at all that Bible teachers are superior or that other forms of service don't matter. Rather, it's that all ministry depends in the first place on word ministry. Now look at verse 12. The teaching of the gospel prepares God's people for works of service. And for what purpose? That the body of Christ might be built up, unified in our faith, personally knowing God's Son, our life together shaped by Jesus' rich character. That's what maturity looks like. And each of us is called to make contribution, which is both exciting and challenging. Exciting for this reason. Every single Christian has been gifted. Every one of us. The New Testament says so. Why? Because there is a U-shaped contribution In the past, it was thought that only priests, ministers and bishops did ministry. Not so. We're taught that we're all here to do ministry, however humble, however niche. So let me ask, are you aware of how you've been gifted? Have you ever reflected about the unique contribution you make or could make to this church? I once joked to a friend that I have the spiritual gift of appreciating meals at church dinners. Uh, But of course, that's not a real gift of service. Uh, There are many ways to serve, but as Christians, service is common to all of us because we follow a saviour who first served us. So the distinction then is no longer between those who serve and those who are served, but in how each one of us serves. The late James Montgomery Boyce noted, The church is only fully vigorous and healthy when all are ministering. Imagine a church where everyone is encouraged, where every contribution, however unique or small, is valued, where people bless each other in creative and caring ways, where we affirm our unity in Christ as well as our different personalities where everything we do is aimed at helping each other mature 
in our faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the kind of church that Jesus is in the business of building by his Spirit. There's one last thing to say about this project of maturity. Growth is vital and necessary. Notice the little detail in verse 14. If we're growing up into spiritual adults, we will no longer be infants. The trust kids have in adults is admirable. In fact, Jesus uses them to illustrate the simple trust we ought to show in God our Father. But another aspect of young children is that they're often not able to discern truth from error and so can be led astray. Uh, Earlier this week, my wife and I were with my mother. Uh, Jess and I were in the living room on a laptop and smartphone respectively like good millennials and all of a sudden uh, we became aware of my uh, mother's phone conversation in the bedroom. Uh, Sound bites included, sorry, are you ringing from Telstra and you want me to download what program? At at which point we rushed in and told her to end the call and we shut the laptop. Uh, As we'd suspected, it was a scam. Uh, There are spiritual scams going around now as there were at the time of this letter. What are we to do? Uh, Cling to God's truthful word. Look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, wrote of John Bunyan, another great preacher, Read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. He continually makes us feel and say, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. The word of God is the lifeblood of the church. Jesus prayed to his father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How are we to be guarded against a storm-tossed, wind-blown, infantile faith? By a healthy diet of scripture in the church and in the home. But we're not to be Bible bashers. Truth and love will grow the church, just as flowers need both rain and sunshine. Neither cold orthodoxy nor untutored love will do. Only truth and love produce growth in unison. It's a package deal. John Stott again. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Our priority is unity. It's who we are. Our project is maturity. It's what we're for. We are the body of Christ. It was taught in the medieval universities that action follows being. Or to put it more simply, things do what things are. They act according to their nature. Or again, we do what we are. The sun shines, the bud flowers, the bee makes honey. We are the body of Christ. To truly and deeply know this is to live this. We're simply to live out what we are in Christ by his spirit according to God's great power which Gerard Manley Hopkins captures in his sonnet as kingfishers catch fire. I say more, the just man, justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. 
Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. What is it to live worthily of our calling? To act in God's eye, what in God's eye we already are, the body of Christ. May God help us to realise this calling, to be the body of Christ. May God give us grace to grow up into maturity, into Christ, who is the head of the body. Amen. Please uh, stand as we sing our next song, Grace Has Now Appeared.